the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, over the weekend, after the D.C. press corps had to uh, call off their coverage of the imminent World War III from earlier in the week. They were still prosecuting the case on behalf of Soleimani and on behalf of, uh, well, a non-intervention in the region in it, on behalf of the opposition to calling, uh, green-lighting the strike on Soleimani. Let me give you an example. Uh, Mark Esper, SecDef, Secretary of Defense, was on with Jake Tapper on State of the Union, CNN, and the question was about the actionable intelligence. This is the new focus of the press. Uh, was there a legitimate basis to order the strike uh, as if uh, we're supposed to ignore everything that Soleimani has done over the last two decades? But even more importantly, all of the things he had been doing in theater in real time up until the point that Trump ordered the strike. And here's what uh, Secretary Esper had to say. What about the, the intelligence? Was there specific intelligence the Iranians were plotting to target four U.S. embassies? There was intelligence that they had, there was an intent to target the U.S. embassy in Baghdad. What the president said with regard to the four embassies is what I believe as well. He said that he believed that they probably, that they could have been targeting the embassies in the region. I believe that as well as did other uh, national security team members. That is why I deployed thousands of additional paratroopers to the region to reinforce our embassy in Baghdad and to reinforce other locations throughout the region. And Esper told Tapper, look, this is the big takeaway for the American people. The important thing is this. Soleimani orchestrated resource directed the attacks escalating up to the December uh, one that killed an American. He orchestrated the siege on the U.S. embassy in Baghdad, and he was planning this much broader plot in multiple countries that would be bigger in scale and that likely would have taken us to open hostility with Iran. In fact, a very, very senior intelligence community official said to us that the risk of inaction is greater than the risk of action. To me, that is very compelling. Meanwhile, over at the Meet the Press, that yapping terrier Chuck Todd sat down with Trump's NSA, Robert O'Brien, and uh, he was hung up on who is properly ascribed to be a terrorist and who is it. Listen to this. If you are calling him a terrorist, then isn't everybody in that regime a terrorist, by well, definition? Well, well, in this case, the Quds Force, the IRGC Quds Force, which operates outside of Iran and foments revolution and terrorism in, in Yemen, in Syria, where 500,000 people have been killed, in Lebanon with Hezbollah, uh, in Iraq, mm -hmm. uh, that's, that, that organization has been designated legally as a terrorist organization. Soleimani was the head of it. But he's not just been designated by us. 
He's under a travel ban from the U.N. He shouldn't even have been outside of Iran. I mean, this, this, is a, uh, this was someone who was a leader of an organization that was engaged in terror. Uh, he was involved in plotting imminent, imminent attacks against the United States. Uh, the president made a, a very difficult uh, decision, but a bold decision to Would remove he not him have from been... the battlefield. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Katie McFarland. She was President Trump's first deputy national security advisor who helped formulate his maximum pressure campaigns. She's the author of the forthcoming book, Revolution. Trump, Washington, and we, the people. KT, thanks for joining us. It's been too long. It's a pleasure. It's yeah. been way too long. Yeah, it's great to hear from you. So what about uh, this uh, this concern of uh, who's a terrorist and who's not and the lead state sponsor of terror and uh, whether or not the actionable intelligence is, at tr- as w- what the president was saying earlier in the week, this seems to be the focus of the D.C. press corps. You're just grasping at straws. You know, it's been an extremely successful policy. It's been strategically planned, which they can't accept that Trump actually can plan things in advance. But it was strategically lined up with the following. The United States needed to first fix our economy, which Trump did in the first two years. Second, get independent of Middle East oil, which Trump did by unleashing the fracking revolution. So not only were we independent, um, energy self-sufficient and independent, but we are now the world's largest exporter of oil and natural gas. We can take the Middle East place as an exporter and hub of world energy. And then finally, because the United States controls the world banking system through the SWIFT system, and all all sales and purchases of oil and Iranian oil are done through this international banking system, the United States could effectively sanction Iran and any countries that want to do business with Iran. All three of those things were set up at the beginning of Trump's administration to give him leverage. And last week we saw how the leverage worked. Because of his defense buildup, he had the ability to just take Soleimani out without any collateral damage. And it showed the power and might of the United States military. And it also showed the Iranian leaders, look, Trump, Trump is not afraid to use force against you. And it probably is also because of who Soleimani has been for the last three decades. It's probably sent them into a certain amount of chaos. And it also has sent a message to the Chinese, to the Russians, to the North Koreans, don't mess with Trump. He's not afraid of taking decisive action and a calculated risk. And so what are the Democrats left with and their allies in the liberal media? Well, maybe they're going to argue over little things that really are hardly significant. I mean, it's like saying, well, you know, Hitler's a bad guy. We know he's a bad guy. But we're not sure if he's got another attack plan, so we really shouldn't take him out. Come on, guys. Well, the and, world is a safer place. Yeah, and I want to pick up on this uh, point that you're making about, you know, it's it's a reckless administration, the policy's incoherent. Well, in this case, uh, Trump drew a line, and unlike his predecessor, he manned it, which is you will not kill, injure Americans. And that's where Iran crossed the line after much, uh, months of provocations of other sorts said, no, this demands a response to let you know where the lines are. In addition to that, uh, you use the word coordinated. And I just want to emphasize that because this coverage in The Wall Street Journal doesn't get enough amplification. Uh, Swiss back channel helped defuse U.S.-Iran crisis. Uh, the report of uh, uh, the Trump administration back channeling to Tehran through the Swiss embassy in Iran, one of the few means of direct confidential communication between the two sides, saying, do not escalate. And so that this was ongoing. So this this idea that there was no preparation, it shocked senior Pentagon officials. They didn't want him to do this. 
and this is just sort of one uh, man's uh, idiosyncratic decision-making, well, that just doesn't square with the facts. No, it doesn't. And, you know, to Trump's credit, he understood early in the administration that everything was leaking, that the administrative state, um, the people who resented Trump coming in, you know, he wasn't their candidate, that he comes in and he's running the country. They resented it, and so they leaked and tried to sabotage from within. Trump understood that, and so what he did was from the very beginning of starting to use military force, and I was there in the Situation Room in the Oval Office with him when he decided to bomb the Syrian airfields that had um, had used chemical weapons against their own men, women, and children. He keeps the circle small. He gets his information, but then his decision-making circle is quite small because he doesn't want it to leak. Because if things like a military operation leak in advance, well, it tips off the bad guys, and they're not there when you go to attack them or they've scattered, or they've taken defensive measures. So if you want a military operation that's successful and doesn't cost American lives, you keep the decision-making loop small, which is what Trump has done. And uh, the, the whole matter of Soleimani being an example of escalation, rather than, as uh, Mike Pompeo in the administration argues, it was de-escalatory in nature. It was to end a war, not start one, or prevent a war, prevent a war, not start one. Uh, and And the reaction from... So many, including uh, Democrat presidential candidates like uh, Mayor Pete, has been to essentially imply that Trump bears at least some culpability for Iran shooting down a commercial airliner in Iranian airspace with Russian missiles. Good grief. I mean, you know, they're, they're really grasping at straws. I mean, tomorrow night we're going to watch the Democrats get into a circle and start trying to fire against Trump. And they're always going to miss why? Because the economy is terrific. It, has, it hasn't been better since even before the Reagan administration. Unemployment, the lowest unemployment rates in our history for all across every ethnic group, every religious group, every gender. The economy's never been better. The stock market has never been higher. We're going to have a trade agreement with the Chinese shortly. We already have new trade agreements with Japan and South Korea we will, and Mexico and Canada. We will have one with Britain the minute they get out of the European Union. And I predict that we'll have some kind of a new relationship with Iran before the election. So what are the Democrats left with? Nothing. There's, how are they going to make the economy better? You can't make the economy better. We're not in a foreign war. Trump is has avoided a war by taking the action that he has. If we had had attacks on American embassies and Americans were killed, the American people, including the Democrats on the stage tomorrow night, would have clamored for World War III. And Trump has, has realized and maneuvered events so that we do not, we have de-escalated. We are now seeing Iran sending signal after signal that they want a new relationship. They're done with the escalation. They, um, they're so hurting. Their economy is in such dire straits. The only economy in the world that's in worse shape is Venezuela. And the Iranians know that if they don't find a way out of the hole that they're in, their own people are going to throw them out of office. We're talking to KT McFarland. KT, uh, when we come back, I want to ask you about the maximum pressure campaign and the implications going forward. Uh, we'll be right back with KT McFarland on the Dan Prop Show. You feel it when the dance gets hot. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to KT McFarland, President Trump's first deputy national security advisor who helped formulate his maximum pressure campaign. She's also the author of the forthcoming book, Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. Uh, KT, Trump uh, tweeting out over the weekend in the direction of the protesters in Iran protesting the mullahs. To the brave, long-suffering people of Iran, I've stood with you since the beginning of my presidency. My administration will continue to stand with you. We, we are following your protest closely and are inspired by your, by your courage. He continued, the government of Iran must allow human rights groups to monitor and report facts from the ground on the ongoing protests of the Iranian people. There can be there cannot be another massacre of peaceful protesters nor an Internet shutdown. The world is watching. And he tweeted out in Farsi as well. And it uh, be- instantly became the most uh, popular tweet in Persian history. Uh, and and the, the, but it runs in counter to what we're hearing from the press corps about the revered General Soleimani and the throngs of Iranians who turn out to mourn Soleimani and the 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 uh, the reigniting of Iranian nationalism uh, as a result of the Soleimani strike. In point of fact, what you had at students at in universities in Tehran saying America is not the enemy, which is not something we normally hear on the streets of Iran. In point of fact, our leaders are the enemy, and they were protesting against their leaders, particularly after uh, they had to uh, acknowledge that they shot down that Ukrainian airliner with all of those Iranians on it. You know, Dan, you brought up a really important point, which the press corps and the Democrats have all ignored, which is the people of Iran were out in the streets before this, the Soleimani killing, that the regime, the regime is very unpopular. There's something like... 15%, 20% unemployment, but in the people who are out on the streets, the young people, there's probably 40% unemployment. The officially recognized that there's 50% inflation, it's probably closer to 70% inflation in certain key things. Winter is coming. They have a hmm. shortage of fuel oil and gasoline. They've had to raise the prices on those. 80 million people in Iran are struggling to survive, and those people have gone out in the streets. And just a month ago, those people went out in the streets, and Soleimani personally ordered his force to kill 1,500 of them. Those same people are back out in the streets in greater numbers, and they're holding their mullahs responsible. Why do you think, I mean, this has never occurred to the Trump's critics, but why do they think that the, that the Ayatollah, all of a sudden, out of the blue, kept sending signals to Trump, we're not going to kill Americans we're not going to have it. We're going to retaliate but to save our national pride. But we're, we really don't want to have this escalate. It's because they're scared. And that's what Trump understood. With the maximum pressure campaign was designed to target economies of weak countries. And within the case of Iran, it was no one option was going to work. Military, we don't want another war. In the Middle East, we know diplomacy has never worked because diplomacy, I mean, negotiating without any leverage isn't negotiating, it's just begging. And so Trump understood that if you used all those together, press their economy to the breaking point, make sure that they cannot retaliate against us economically by being energy independent, and understand that militarily we could match them. I mean, what Trump did last week was he basically said to Iran, you have three choices. We can crush you militarily, as we've just shown, we can destroy you economically, which you already know, or you can embrace us. We will hold out the hand of friendship. We would love to welcome you into the world community. You're a nation of great prospects, 
you could have enormous prosperity, just no nuclear weapons, and don't kill Americans. Uh, Robin Wright, writing in The New Yorker, suggests that uh, maximum pressure is not working. In point of fact, uh, people are rallying around the theocracy after Soleimani's death. And even more than that, Tehran is much more capable today, she writes. It's evolved into the world lead, world's leading practitioner of gray zone activities, covert and unacknowledged military operations, proxy attacks, and cyber war. And uh, we, the United States, are struggling to respond effectively to Iranians' gray zone activities. You know, I think she's writing about a situation that might have been true five years ago, but isn't true today. Hmm. You know, we've just shown them that we could take out their number two guy in the country. He didn't see it coming. A drone strike in another country. He's in a he's in a convoy, and just the car was taken out, and the people sitting next to him. It didn't take out anybody around him. There was no warning to him that it was coming. One minute he was there, the next minute he was vaporized. And to say that Iran is the world's sponsor of terror, so therefore we should be terrorized, no, we should stand up to them and take away their ability to be terrorists. And that's what he's done. You know, the reason things have changed so much in the Middle East in the last couple of years, Iran used to always have this boogeyman that they would throw out. If you guys do anything to hurt us, we're going to shut down the oil flow. We're going to close the Strait of Hormuz. We're going to throw the oil market into disarray. You're going to have to spend... $10 to buy a gallon of gas. Well, because we now control the price of oil and natural gas, because we are the world's leader of that, if Iran tries to do what they've threatened to do for years, they're going to hurt themselves a lot more. They're going to disrupt their own oil supply. Meanwhile, the United States is in a position of, thank you very much, we'll fill the void, we'll get rich on the fact that you can't have Middle East oil get to the rest of the world. So I think Robin Wright, who I've known for a number of years, I think she's just stuck in a mindset that was a couple of years ago and hasn't adjusted to the new reality. Well, there's a lot of Obama folks, and they're uh, they're <laughs> the members of the echo chamber that are still trying to defend the appeasement policy from the previous yeah. administration, clearly. Uh, I wanted to also uh, ask you, that, you know, it's a difficult to assess how vulnerable uh, authoritarian and totalitarian regimes are. We've seen how difficult it has been to displace Maduro, even with an opposition yeah. leader in Guaido. And and so, you know, even with the student protests and uh, the the the, in, the 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 need for the mullahs to look internally now because of the culpability in shooting down that uh, passenger flight. Uh, what's your assessment? Do you, can you even get a feel in terms of how vulnerable this regime in Tehran really is? Well, only time will tell. But I would make two points. One, the Iranians have taken to the streets before and in 1979 overthrew the Shah. So they're not afraid of revolutions, popular uprisings and revolutions. And the second thing is that the Iranians are smart. They're Persians. They invented the game of chess, and they're quite good at it. Hmm. What they've got to look at is who they want to deal with. You know, John Kerry and a number of the Democrats and the Obama people have been running around the world, especially to Tehran, and whispering in the ears of the Iranian foreign minister and defense minister, don't worry, Trump is going to get kicked out of office. He'll never be reelected. You'll be able to deal with us again, and then the good old days will return. And they believed him. And now what they've got to contemplate this summer is, gee, maybe we're going to have to deal with Trump term two. And look at how tough he's been in term one when he's running for reelection and he's got the main press, the press corps against him and all the Democrats are criticizing him. What's it going to be like when he's unchained? Maybe we better do some kind of a deal this summer. I predict you're going to see an awful lot of shifting around 
before the election as countries like Iran, China, North Korea reassess. They think Trump is going to get reelected. They're going to calculate. They better do something to be on his good side now. And then that was and Trump did extend an olive branch in his national address too, to message to the Iranian people. He's willing to make a deal, but it's got to be a, a good on deal. Yeah, that's on right. KT McFarland, President Trump's first deputy national security advisor who helped formulate his maximum pressure campaigns. She is the author of the forthcoming book you want to pick up revolution trump washington and we the people kt thank you so much for joining us Appreciate it's it. a pleasure dan good to talk to you good to talk to you this is the dan proft show Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. So Nancy Pelosi made the great patriotic sacrifice to give her season tickets away and skip the 49ers-Vikings playoff game this weekend in order to save the Republic. She made an additional sacrifice in uh, sitting down with Clinton Foundation donor zero. That would be George Stephanopoulos for those of you scoring at home on this week on Sunday to uh, discuss when, if, when she may transmit the articles of impeachment to the Senate on Friday we heard, oh, this is imminent. She's conceding. She's going to turn them over. Over the weekend, she said, uh, I'm going to meet with my caucus on Tuesday, and then we'll make a determination on sending the articles of impeachment to the Senate. Uh, and then, of course, Nancy Pelosi's latest argument, the latest iteration of the House Democrats' argument, is cover-up. So, again, to keep those scorecards out, uh, we've gone from Trump colluded with the Russians to rig the 2016 election, never mind that, to Trump used his office, abused his office, to try to enlist a foreign power to dig up dirt on a political opponent so as to rig the 2020 election. Bribery and extortion. Those were the words that were used after they had uh, received good marks from focus groups, right? Well, never mind that. Now we're into its cover-up. The whole thing is a cover-up. If Mitch McConnell doesn't accede to the demands of Schumer and Pelosi, then he is covering up Trump's abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. One of the things that I think is really important and what uh, I, I think people should be very aware of, very unusually, the leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, has signed on to a resolution to dismiss the case, to dismiss the case. Uh, that, in his view, may be... Uh, but he's good. committed to having the presentations first now. I'm telling you that he signed on on Thursday to a resolution to dismiss the case. The dismiss, dismissing is a cover-up. Dismissing is a cover-up. If they want to go that route again, the senators who are thinking now about voting for witnesses or not, they will have to be accountable uh, for not having a fair trial. You made the- dismissing is a cover-up. So what she said is a lie, of course. It went unchallenged by Stephanopoulos, of course. He's just there to provide a platform for her not to actually ask questions or challenge assertions. McConnell signed on to a resolution that would dismiss the charges, and that's a cover-up. Well, we've talked about in this show the Josh Hawley resolution, Senator from Missouri, which is what Pelosi is referencing that McConnell signed on to, says to House Speaker, you have 25 days to transmit the articles of impeachment. If you don't, at that point, it would be the option for a senator to move a motion to dismiss. So, 
the cover up in quotations she's talking about, she's referencing, she's alleging. Can be cured by Nancy Pelosi. She has complete power to end this cover up that she's so concerned about. You know how you do it? Turn over the articles of impeachment that passed your chamber. (laughs) Pretty straightforward, I think. Uh, Pelosi said something else, though, that I think is a real tell about the motivations of her and her caucus mates. We had we have confidence in our case that it is impeachable and this president is impeached for life, regardless of any gamesmanship on the part of uh, Mitch McConnell. Impeached for life. He's impeached for life. and There's nothing you can do about it. Very mob esque. He's gone and there's nothing you can do about it. You know, like when De Niro got the word that Pesci had been whacked. Uh, Don't forget, Pelosi's a D'Alessandro. Not making any aspersions about that. But here's the thing. Uh, yeah, he's impeached. He wears the scarlet eye, and you cannot remove it from him, from the permanent record. It goes in his permanent record. Yeah. And it seems to me that despite this, this kind of the analysis of this from the punditocracy, oh, this is really about the Senate, and you know the master strategist is trying to put swing state senators like Gardner in Colorado and Collins in Maine and Tillis in North Carolina – in God's little acre between the rock and the hard place. It's really about taking back the Senate because they can't uh, they can't be sure. They may even be skeptical they can defeat Trump. So rather than that, rather than or as a as a a plan B to that, uh, you take back the Senate, then you can hamstring a second Trump term, particularly as it pertains to any potential opportunity for Supreme Court nominees. Well, that's interesting. I think it, frankly, ascribes more gravamen, uh, more, more gravitas than uh, than to, to Pelosi than she deserves. I think the, the gravamen here is just vindictiveness, Vindic- vindictiveness coming from her backbencher backbenchers that she's channeling. When we come back, I want to talk a, a little bit more about this, get Trump's response to Pelosi, Pelosi's uh, contention. And, uh, you know, maybe she's onto something. Maybe we should take our time. Paul Sperry is pointing to a story that is developing that you'll want to hear about all that when we come back on the Dan Prof show. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof. And this is the Dan Prof show. Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show. We're talking about impeachment and Pelosi's pronouncements over the weekend, including that uh, Trump is impeached and there's nothing you can do about it. Well, Trump had a rejoinder to that in uh, his sit down with Laura Ingram. No, they've cheapened the word impeachment. It's a bad word to start off with. I really say it's an ugly word. To me, it's a very ugly word. But uh, maybe it played to our benefit. Maybe it is. Maybe it is playing to your benefit in real time. Trump also suggested that, uh, look, he's got a lot of questions he'd like to ask people, you know, on the matter of should witnesses be called? Should we have a full blown thing? Uh, The witnesses the Democrats want, like Bolton and Mulvaney, the witnesses that some Republicans have suggested they would want if witnesses are to be called like, oh, I don't know, Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and Adam Schiff and the so-called whistleblower. 
Well, I would love to ask a couple of their people some questions like, Schiff, why did he lie? Why did he make up my statement? Totally made it up. But again, the whole thing unraveled when I put in the transcript, because it's all about the transcript, and it's all about the president of Ukraine saying he did nothing wrong. How long do you think this will last? Well, it depends. If they have a trial, it probably takes a few days or a week. And uh, or, unless we want to have a bigger trial where we bring in the whistleblower, which I'd love to do, and I'd love to bring in the, the informer who disappeared. I'd love to bring in the second whistleblower who disappeared. I'd love to bring in the inspector general. Why did he bring it up there? He should have never done it. He didn't want to see the call. He didn't want to see the call. He took this whistleblower, who's a fraud. He took the whistleblower's report, and he put it in. They said to him, no, no, if, it's, if that's the case, if you have to do that, what we'll do is we'll show you the actual call. No, 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 I don't want to see it. What's that all about? Why did he do that? Inspector General. So I'd like to interview the Inspector General. Why did he do that? It's Michael Atkinson has been called, not by name, but he's the Intelligence Community Inspector General. And, uh, and you heard Trump's assessment of his decision to legitimize that uh, so-called whistleblower complaint. By the way, did you notice that uh, Trump just gives refers to the whistleblower, too? May I present Frau Blucher? I think it's because, you know, it's a name that shall not be spoken. And when Trump r- tweeted something that referenced his name, even though we all know his name, I'll say it. Eric Charmella. May I present Frau Blucher? We're all stuck in a Gene Wilder movie. Well, Mel Brooks movie with Gene Wilder starring, of course. Uh, so he just refers to them by titles, which is sufficient. He uh, also, but he did refer to some people by name, the, some of the people that the uh, Democrats would like to testify. He's fine with that, at least theoretically. I would have no problem other than one thing. You can't be in the White House as president future. I'm talking about future, many future presidents, and have a security advisor, anybody having to do with security and legal and other things. You're going to invoke executive privilege? Well, I think you have to for the sake of the office. I would love everybody to testify. I like Mick to testify. I like Mike Pompeo to testify. I like Rick Perry to testify. I want everybody. But there are things that you can't do from the standpoint of executive privilege. You have to maintain that. Yeah. So, in, you know, in a perfect world, Laura, I'd love everybody to testify. This isn't a perfect world. And we have uh, private conversations that need to stay private for the, in the interest of national security. That's why there is such a thing as executive privilege. And oh, by the way, lest we forget, the Democrats who wanted some of these individuals to testify in the House had every opportunity to pursue through the courts piercing executive privilege and compelling testimony, compelling the production of particular documents. They chose not to do that. They chose to rush this over because they didn't want to wait for the courts to adjudicate the matters for two reasons. One, because it's not on their political timeline. And two, because it would have taken away one of their articles of impeachment, obstruction of Congress. How was he obstructing Congress if you went to court seeking relief and you either were granted that relief in whole or in part or or you weren't? But the matter was adjudicated. There was no presidential obstruction, you see. Yeah. And so uh, where are we left? I mean, I think that Trump is taking the proper PR position, but there's no way that it makes any sense to open this whole thing up and have a circus of the uh, the the witnesses, Democrats desire and then bringing as as delicious as it would be bringing the Bidens in and the so-called whistleblower and uh, Michael Atkinson, the ICIG 
and uh, Adam Schiff uh, and, and prolonging this. I, I'm, from my perspective, whoever ends this first, whoever makes the moves to move this along to its conclusion the fastest is going to receive the political benefit because you just can't get uh, much to the chagrin of Nancy Pelosi and her caucus. You just aren't getting much interest, much interest from the American people, much less, much less is this, uh, much less are they able to persuade the American people to their point of view. You know, you, you can't whip people into frenzy if you can't even get their attention. And that's sort of the problem for Democrats on the Hill right now. There's potentially an additional problem. Uh, I mentioned before the break, Paul Sperry. Remember, he is the investigative reporter who did the Real Clear uh, Investigations story that outed the whistleblower. He had tweeted out over the weekend, developing government watchdogs raising concerns. Hunter Biden's political gifts, Hunter Biden's political gifts to several Senate Democrats, including Leahy, Menendez, Booker, White House, Cardin, Cantwell may transgress Senate conflict of interest rules and possibly trigger recusal requirements during Senate impeachment voting. You imagine? Uh, Boy, that would be an interesting topic for discussion in an impeachment trial, or maybe it's not even required. Hunter Biden's political gifts, ostensibly on behalf behalf of Burisma, or maybe it's on behalf of Chinese uh, private equity interests, to Democrat senators, Leahy, Vermont, Menendez, Jersey, Booker, Jersey, White House, uh, Rhode Island, Cardin, Maryland, Cantwell, Washington State. Do you imagine all of them having to recuse themselves from voting on the impeachment because of gifts they received from Hunter Biden? Talk about a comeuppance. And here was President Trump's comeuppance for Pelosi on with Laura Ingram. Uh, Nancy Pelosi will go down as probably the least successful speaker of the House in the history of our nation. She has done nothing. She is obsessed with impeachment. She has done nothing. She's going to go down as one of the worst speakers in the history of our country. Now, in all fairness, she's hurting our country. She's very bad for our country. And she's become a crazed lunatic. But she will go down as, I think, maybe the worst speaker in the history of our country. But at least she gets to go to the NFC Championship game in San Francisco this weekend. This is the Dan Prof Show. Listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, we lost uh, two people over the weekend worth remarking upon. One, uh, per Tom Sawyer. My opinion, the greatest rock drummer of all time. That's Neil Peart of Rush. Gosh, I saw them in concert uh, in uh, 2015 at the MGM in Vegas for their R40 Rush at 40 Years tour. I mean, they just rock. Neil Peart, a genius, uh, died uh, uh, on Friday. It was announced at the age of uh, 67 after a three-year battle with brain cancer. Um, and, I, I mean, Rush's moving pictures, that was a staple in my Walkman, yes, uh, Walkman, back in the 80s. So uh, grew up with Rush and... Uh, very sad to mark the passing of Neil Peart. But in addition to that, uh, Roger Scruton. So we had an artist and we also had an intellectual. Roger Scruton, if you're not familiar with his work, I'd encourage you to get familiar. He passed away at the age of 75. 
Um, the meaning of conservatism is a good place to start, in my opinion, with respect to Scruton. He gave an interview to uh, our friend Rod Dreyer uh, recently. He had uh, been uh, attacked by the mob in England uh, and removed from a commission on which he sat for uh, saying some things that were taken out of context and deemed intemperate and hateful about uh, Islamophobia and about Chinese culture. And so he was sacked. And he um, talked about it a bit uh, with Dreyer. I thought his uh, perspective on it was interesting, telling about our culture in the West these days. Uh, Scruton telling Dreyer, the witch-hunting hysteria has returned with a vengeance, not in Eastern Europe, but here, where open inquiry and the presumption of innocence have been until this moment the foundation of moral order and the guarantee of civil peace. He's talking about it returning uh, here rather than Eastern Europe because he's clearly referencing the former Soviet bloc. He goes on, even the Divinity School at Cambridge, which once bravely helped us in offering degrees to our students, has joined in the witch hunt, revoking a fellowship offered to the conservative thinker Jordan Peterson in response to a petition littered with the signatures of ignorant snowflakes. And just a few months ago, I was summarily removed as the unpaid head of a government quango. It's like a administrative body NGO for things I had neither thought nor said. My Czech colleague said, yep, it's starting again. And by it, they really did mean it. Now in Britain, as then in Czechoslovakia, the true intellectual is a dissident. And if our national memory is to survive, it will be because we have succeeded in building here as we once built there an underground university devoted to knowledge. Really interesting thinking about the future of higher education or the future of education in general and the idea that open uh, inquiry and things like the presumption of innocence and things even in the private setting that mirror the due process norms of Western culture will have to go underground before they can reemerge above ground. A sad commentary on where we are in the West uh, to mark the sad passing of Roger Scruton, one of the great conservative intellectuals of the last 50 years. This is the Dan Prof Show. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. And an uh, interesting study out from the Fraser Institute uh, to our friends in strange Brewerland, uh, Great White North, Canada, Waiting Your Turn, they're Waiting Your Turn report, uh, that examines uh, wait times to access uh, the Canadian national health care system, you know, that uh, is supposed to be the model for our health care system, at least so, per the Democrat Socialists, the Medicare for All crowd. Uh, overall, uh, waiting times for medically necessary treatment have increased since last year, the Institute finds, looking at uh, specialist physicians across 12 specialties in 10 provinces. Uh, specialist physicians surveyed report a median waiting time of 20.9 weeks between referral from a general practitioner and receipt of treatment. You're referred from a GP and you wait uh, five months, five to six months to receive treatment. Hmm. 
this is an interesting point, too. You know, this you would think would perfected over time, the central planning, right? From the consultation with a specialist to the point at which patient receives treatment, the waiting time in this segment decreased from 11 weeks in 2018 to 10.8 weeks this year. However, this wait time is 92% longer than in 1993 when it was five and a half weeks. So in 25 plus years, rather than becoming more efficient and better at serving Canadian families, the wait times have doubled. Uh, the uh, report goes on. It's estimated that across the 10 provinces, the total number of procedures for which people are waiting in 2019 is nor- north of a million procedures. Patients experience significant waiting times for various diagnostic technologies across the province as well. Canadians could expect to wait 4.8 weeks for a computed tomography scan, nine and a half weeks for a magnetic resonance imaging scan, MRI. Ten weeks for an MRI, nine weeks for an MRI, three and a half weeks for an ultrasound. Research has repeatedly indicated that wait times for medically necessary treatment are not benign inconveniences. Wait times can and do have serious consequences, such as increased pain, suffering, and mental anguish. Well, yeah, of course. Uh, That's the old PGR work joke. In Canada, the uh, good news about that gallbladder surgery you need, it's free. The bad news is you're never going to get it. For more on this topic... We're pleased to be joined by Sally Pipes. Sally is uh, uh, the author of the new book, False Premise, False Promise, The Disastrous Reality of Medicare for All. This couldn't be more timely. Sally, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me on. It's a very hot topic uh, these days. Yeah. And so um, what does uh, what does that Fraser that the, the Fraser report data tell you about uh, uh, what we should or shouldn't be doing with uh, health care in America? Well, I don't know if you know, but I am a former Canadian, and I started my career at the Fraser Institute. And we, you know, but I left in 1991 to join PRI. Um, but you know, we had started working in the late 80s on this project, waiting your turn, because we could tell that there were waiting times uh, developing. So, you know, for people like Bernie Sanders to always be touting, you know, he is the Pied Piper of single payer healthcare in my mind. He's always touting we need the Canadian system, which totally bans any private coverage for anything considered medically necessary, which is virtually everything but LASIK surgery, cosmetic surgery. So when government determines what is going to be what it's going to spend on health care, naturally they have to control that number and you get ration care and long waits, as you mentioned. So in 1993, when the average wait from seeing a primary care doctor treatment by a specialist was 9.3 weeks, last year, 20.9 weeks. And for Bernie Sanders to say, you know, and it's all free, it's not free. The average Canadian family last year paid $13,311 in hidden taxes for a healthcare system that has long waits, ration care, a doctor shortage, and of course, very um, poor um, access to the latest um, treat, um, um, things such as MRIs, CT scans, positron emission tomography, all of these things. You know, Canada, the government of each province can't afford to buy new equipment, so a lot of the equipment is outdated. And as I say, um, $13,311 in hidden taxes to pay for this, and the fact that 217,000 Canadians in 2017 went abroad because they felt that the healthcare waiting time was, was too long. Canada has an escape valve. Where are we going to go if, if the American people elect uh, Bernie Sanders and he introduces his Medicare for All 
you know, he says almost within the first week of him becoming president. Well, the argument they have is, is that, you know, we need to we need to uh, reduce the costs of health care in America. You know, the idea that a family of four would be paying two thousand dollars a month in premiums. That's untenable. And we spend the most money per capita on health care in the in the world. And that's a problem. Number one, is that a problem? And number two, why is it that we spend the most money per capita in the world on health care? Well, I don't think it's a problem at all. I'm delighted to be living in the U.S. And America is a very wealthy country. And Americans demand uh, the very best in health care, the very best treatments. And there's a tremendous cost in developing new pharmaceuticals, new biologics to treat, you know, forms of cancer, all of these things, the latest medical uh, devices and equipment. And so Americans demand that these things aren't available um, in Canada. But we, you know, in America, 180 million Americans have their health care through their employer. And when you look at when Elizabeth Senator Elizabeth Warren in the debate says, I've never met an American who likes their health insurance. Well, she hasn't talked to many uh, people because 71 percent of the people polled said they rate their health care through their employer as good or as excellent. So I don't know where she um, is getting her numbers. She, of course, was Senator Warren was you know, one of the signers on to Bernie Sanders uh, 2019 bill. She was supporting Medicare for all. She's kind of backed off right. um, a bit on that to her stepping stone approach, which is a public option, which, of course, will lead to single payer. But just um, in year three of her presidency rather than right away. Some of the, the some of those on the left are trying to get uh, their fellow travelers off of impeachment and focused on uh, quality, affordable, portable health care, health insurance and, and by extension, uh, health care, because they see this as the uh, linchpin issue. It was the linchpin issue in 2018 in the midterms, and they see that the same in 2020. And so there's uh, for those that are not fully signed on to uh, the formal government takeover of health insurance healthcare in this country. They've got sort of a smorgasbord of legislative measures. They're discussing uh, uh, patients over pharma campaign that uh, is, is marketing a way to, through price controls, reduce the cost of pharmaceutical drugs. Uh, there's legislation from Alyssa Slotkin in Michigan uh, and April Spanberger in Virginia, again, talking about drug price transparency and lowering costs. Is there anything uh, circulating in Congress right now that you would point to and say, you know, that's a start in terms of addressing some of the failings in the healthcare system as currently constituted with this hybrid of private and government? Well, I mean, as, as you, you mentioned, in 2018, the Democrats took the House back. And I think one of the reasons they took it back from the Republicans is because they didn't deal with and tell the American people how they were going to deal with people with pre-existing conditions if Obamacare ended. And that, that was a mistake on their part. But if you look right now um, in, um, in the House, Nancy Pelosi and her sort of views on, you know, getting drug prices down, um, it's a terrible idea. She wants to bring in price controls on the pharmaceutical industry, which will destroy the research and development, the innovation, which all takes place in America. It doesn't take place in countries with price controls like Canada, Britain, France, or Germany. We are the, 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 the country where this innovation takes place, and we want to keep that, that open. I mean, we need to give people choices, but we don't need more government involvement because if we destroy the, uh, the American um, pharmaceutical biologic industry, it's going to affect everybody. And if you, as a Canadian, you know, many, you know, Donald Trump's view of importing drugs, uh, certain, bio- certain drugs from Canada 
first of all, generics are more expensive in the U.S. and in Canada than they are in the U.S., and it's a terrible idea because Canada has a population of 37 million. We have 330 million people here. And as the Canadian government officials have said, Canada can't be the drugstore for the U.S. They'd be out of all of their drugs uh, within uh, six months. And a number of drugs that we take for granted here, the new cancer drugs, they aren't even on the formularies, formularies in, in each of the provinces and in, in Canada because the governments determine that they're still too expensive. So we want to keep this pipeline open because this is where it all happens. And when Pelosi and et al. start talking about price controls, they tried that, you know, under Medicare Part D. Um, she wanted, um, you know, the government to, go, to negotiate the prices for, for the drugs. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. But she's back again pushing it, and it would be a disaster. Yeah, and uh, Republicans have an opportunity per Bernie and to some extent Elizabeth to say, uh, our plan is if you like your health insurance, you can keep your health insurance to paraphrase the old Obamacareism, she is Sally Pipes, President and CEO and Thomas W. Smith Fellow in Healthcare Policy at the Pacific Research Institute. The book you want to pick up, it's uh, perfect for the 2020 election cycle, perfect timing. False Premise, False Promise, The Disastrous Reality of Medicare for All. Sally, thanks for joining us on The Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care. That's the power of love. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And it's uh, tough times for Representative Ilhan Omar up there in Minnesota. Perhaps her, uh, the alleged boyfriend she's had for some time takes the edge off a bit that may may help but she's you know there's a pending fec complaint against her for how she was spending campaign campaign resources including on her alleged boyfriend and now she's uh, drawn a, a primary challenge Layla shukri adon is a candidate for the fifth district dfl congressional nomination the democrat farmer labor party in uh, minnesota is basically democrats so it's think of if it was illinois or some other state, uh, it would basically be your Democrat primary. She also, Omar, has a Republican opponent named Danielle Stella, but that's a Dem district, so perhaps all the action is in the primary. And she's got one, and uh, Miss Adon had this uh, piece I saw over at powerlineblog.com last week. She uh, writes, It is with dismay that I read the article describing our congressional representative as the anti-Semite of the year, referring to her being... Omar being named that by the Washington Free Beacon. She brings unwanted attention and shame to the 5th District by her views. Those of us in the Somali community see her words and deeds as a disgrace. She has put us on the map in all the wrong ways. And we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Layla Adan. Ms. Adan, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. So, um, you know, you you sort of lay it out in the first paragraph of your uh, commentary there, but give us the basis for your candidacy and how you think the Somali community actually receives Omar as compared to how it's portrayed, perhaps, in the in the D.C. press corps. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to talk to you and your uh, listeners out there. I'm running because, one, first of all, I'm a patriot of the United States, and uh, when I took my oath of citizenship, I, I took it literally, like many other immigrants and refugees who come to this country. It, it seems like from the commentary I was referencing that what really 
prompted you to run is this percept is, is is Ilhan Omar's what I'll say is Ilhan Omar's anti-Semitism, the uh, the ridiculous and intemperate things she has said about Jewish people. Uh, and mm-hmm. frankly, the you know, the statements like some people did some things on 9-11 and that that you want to make sure people understand that that is not reflective of the larger views of the Somali community, which is quite substantial in Minneapolis. It is absolutely not our views. And some people did not do something. We were attacked by terrorists. And the fact that she can't even with a correction say that out clearly is horrific and reflects badly on the community. Second of all, the 5th District has about a 30 percent population of Jewish Americans who, when she went to ask for their vote uh, at the very last primary debate. It was hosted at Bethel Synagogue. And she clearly, when she was asked very clearly what her support for Jewish causes or uh, the Jewish state of Israel was, she affirmed her support for Israel's right to exist, as well as not supporting the boycott, divest, and sanction movement, which means she clearly did a bait and switch because 10 days after she was sworn in, Ilhan went to have an interview and said that she had now changed her mind. That's exactly 10 days. And so she clearly lied, and that's why I'm running, because I want to be able to debate her on that exact fact. What happened uh, in the Fifth District was horrific. She embarrassed us. She humiliated us and has sown discord amongst us and the Jewish community who have really held us and, and taking care of the Somali community when people first arrived here as refugees. The Jewish community, family services supported Muslims and Somalis in the 5th District to resettle here. And uh, whenever there was any anti-Muslim uh, situation, the Jewish community came to support it. And so now she has not just embarrassed us, she's made everyone think that we actually think that way. It's just that it's come out now. It, she's nothing like any members of the Somali community. Is the Jewish community there in Minneapolis-St. Paul as up in arms about Omar and some of the things she said and the position she's taken as you are? Yes. So so there's a, a real potential for this coalition of Muslims, uh, Somalis and, and Jews to uh, switch out their representation. Absolutely. What is being portrayed in Washington of Ilhan being a very powerful congressperson is a myth in our district. She was when she was first elected. Now she isn't. And there's absolute chance for her to lose this seat. I know she's collected a lot of money, and whoever she's representing in her interest in Washington is not the fifth district. And so she thinks that because she's collected, I mean, over, I believe now, I'm, I'm not quite sure what the number is, but I believe it's close to $2 million. This is a small district. It makes me wonder why that many people would be donating that amount of money to keep Ilhan in Congress. Who are those people and what's their agenda? Because it's certainly not what we want in the fifth district. Well, you know, as, as a Republican, I, I encourage Republicans to donate to Omar to keep her there because she doesn't do any help to the Democrat Party, that's for sure. I assume if you're elected, uh, you would not then be a member of the so-called squad, a term uh, that ascribed to them by Nancy Pelosi. You know, I think the media perpetuates a lot of myths out there that makes to make things newsworthy. I'm going to follow the principles of the Constitution, represent the people of the 5th District as well as I can, and do what my job is, which is to represent the people. And especially within the map of the 5th District, we have a lot of issues here with unemployment, housing, student loans, health care, very basic things. They might not be something that makes us different than any other district in America, but we have the same mom-and-pop issues that every other family has. And so this issue of going to Congress and being part of a squad is not going to be part of my agenda. If you could just take, take a step back and, and tell us a little bit about the Somali community in Minneapolis-St. Paul for those who aren't familiar, because I want people to have an accurate picture of it, not the distorted picture that's being broadcast because of you know Omar being seen as the, the representative of Somali-Americans nationwide. And, and so give us a sense of what that community is and how it interacts with other populations in the district and, and just, you know, what sort of community you have. We have a vibrant, 
hardworking Somali community. Most of them are working very hard, going to school, living their daily lives, opening small businesses, contributing to taxes, law-abiding citizens who love America. That's what I need to put out there. And a lot of people in the mainstream community in the 5th District and in Minnesota know that. We are as appalled as the mainstream community here, the Americans who are born here, at what is going on. We are grateful to be here. We support this country. A lot of young people have signed up to go into the military. And so this perception that's out there that we have this outrageous congresswoman is hurting our futures and our presence in America. She's putting us in danger. And the Somali community is appalled by what she's doing. I'm going to stand up and defend who we are, and we hope to work very hard and to have your listeners help us to remove her. My my aim is to remove her. I mean, I would think that um, as a Somali-American, you would want yes. to use the, the power of America to help your home country and help, well, help the country you've adopted, America, and as well as help the country of origin. And you know what, what way that could help all parties involved is to collaborate to go after al-Shabaab and terrorists in Somalia and elsewhere. Exactly. That is the common interest. Al-Shabaab over there is a problem for both us and the United States. And the United States military base in Somalia is helping protect innocent Somali victims who are bombed almost on a weekly basis. We just had uh, a bombing in in, in Somalia that took out almost 2,000 people. She's very tepid in her response on issues that have to do with uh, terrorism and safety for the United States and for Somalia but very loud about things that have nothing to do with, with the district. We, 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 we sympathize with the issues of Israel and, and, and Palestine, but that is not our core issue in the 5th District. And that's the primary focus of who the congressperson is when you're elected. Layla, where can we find out uh, more information about your campaign? Thank you very much. I have a PO box now, uh, 26272, and I will be on Act Blue before the end of the day. I know that the, your listeners uh, can help. This is a digital world. Uh, uh, please like our pages when they come up. Uh, speak to your friends and family. Donate uh, and help us. Uh, some, we can all dislike something, but we have to act on what we dislike and help remove Ilhan from Congress. She is Layla Shukri Adan. Layla Adan, she's a candidate for the 5th District DFL Congressional nomination, Democrat nomination in Minnesota, running against Representative Ilhan Omar. Ms. Adan, thank you so much for joining us. Refreshing to talk to you, and good luck with your candidacy. Appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you very much, and have a good day. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. to the Dan Prof Show in my best Karnak the Magnificent impersonation, Greta AOC last night, who are three anti-Cassandras. And let's take them in order because all three have opined recently on end days because, yes, climate change. AOC caught by TMZ on the Hill the other night. You know, Greta Thunberg, two you know, really generally young people taking a lead. What do you guys get about it being young as the old people aren't getting right now? I mean, this is our future because I think for us, the stakes are so high. I'm going to live in a world that is fundamentally altered um, by climate change. So is Greta. So is every young person. You know, if you are pretty much under the... First of all, we're seeing it now. Like, we're living through this right now. We're experiencing it right now. But especially if you are under 50 years old, if you're under 40, 30... 
20, 10, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And our futures are going to be impacted by this. And, you know, even people my age are, are stressed and have anxiety about having kids. Um, just because we want to make sure that we're bringing our kids into a healthy world, into a stable future. And we shouldn't ever have to be anxious about that. We, we need to be advocating for a safe future for all of us. Perhaps they're uh, a bit anxious because you have know-nothings prattling on about end days without basis uh, being uh, amplified by celebrity entertainment outlets like TMZ or NBC News or CBS News or ABC News. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, uh, again, a woman who is baffled by a garbage disposal and who spends her days meandering about Brooklyn trying to eradicate colonial cauliflower. But we're supposed to take her seriously as a scientist and deep public policy thinker. Speaking of uh, her colleague, as uh, the TMZ reporter mentioned, Veruca Salt Thunberg, she has an op ed. Uh, over at uh, The Guardian uh, on the occasion of the uh, Davos World Economic Forum in which she writes, quote, we demand, Greta Thunberg, we demand that at this year's forum, participants from all companies, banks, institutions and governments immediately halt all investments in fossil fuel exploration and extraction, immediately end all fossil fuel subsidies and immediately and completely divest from fossil fuels. We don't want these things done by 2050 or 2030 or even 2021. We want them done now, as in right now. How dare you? To some, it may seem like we're asking for a lot. No, no. But this is just the very minimum of effort needed to start the rapid, sustainable transition. The fact that this still in 2020 hasn't been done already is, quite frankly, a disgrace. We're getting shamed by Greta again. Anything less than immediately ceasing these investments in the fossil fuel industry would be a betrayal of life itself. Today's business, as usual, is turning into a crime against humanity. The typical measured, thoughtful distillation of a complicated issue you would expect from the chicken littles of the world, like AOC and like Greta. Do you ever find that when people feel the need to overstate their case to the point of the uh, of mankind's oblivion that uh, they deserve to be viewed with a jaundiced eye. Maybe, maybe they're slightly overstating the case. Maybe they don't come to the table with the kind of humility required to have a thoughtful discussion about things that we have at best a partial handle on. You know, that way, for example, you wouldn't have to be uh, rewriting the signs at Glacier National Park all the time. Do you see this? Yeah, uh, those in the National Park Service in charge of the signage at Montana's Glacier National Park have to, again, uh, edit their the verbiage on their signage. They had to do it last summer, because, and now they've got to do it again. For years, their visitor signs, uh, their main attraction, the glaciers, uh, included the phrase, would be gone by 2020. You know, if nothing is done. Yeah. Uh, The problem now is that we're in 2020 and all 29 of those glaciers are still there at Glacier National Park. Uh, The uh, signs will now say when the they will completely disappear. The glaciers depends on how and when we act. One thing is consistent. 
the glaciers in the park are shrinking. But the truth is that really there's not shrinking. The glaciers have actually expanded in the in the last decade. Mm. Uh, there's predictions, there's articles of faith, and then there's the observable reality. And uh, those two things just aren't helping the case, the cases from uh, AOC and and uh, young Greta. And I haven't even got to last night, but I will after this break. You'll listen to the damn pop show. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Get down with AOC. Like totally. Get down with AOC. Like you know me. Get down with AOC. Can you repeat? Get down with AOC. Blah, 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 blah. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I'm talking about uh, Baruch Asal Thunberg and uh, end of the world spice. That would be AOC talking to TMZ about uh, her uh, peers not uh, wanting to have children, or being anxious about having children because of pronouncements from people, you know, like AOC, that the world's going to end in 12 years. Let me introduce you to Les Knight, if you haven't, been, haven't familiarized yourself with Mr. Knight. Uh, he takes it a step further even than uh, Greta and AOC. He's the founder of the Behemt Movement. Yeah, Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. Mm-hmm. He's got a piece in The Guardian, too. I really like these apocalyptic thinkers over at The Guardian. Fifty years ago, I concluded the best thing for the planet would be a peaceful phase-out of human existence. These are people are serious. I mean, they should be treated seriously, but... They should be treated seriously. Take them at their word. Why? Because, according to Mr. Knight, we're causing the extinction of hundreds of thousands of other species. With us gone, I believe ecosystems will be restored and there will be enough of everything. No more fighting over resources. The idea wasn't as well received as I had hoped. (laughs) Uh, Sorry there, uh, Jonestown, that uh, people didn't want to commit... uh, Mass suicide, They're a little reluctant to embrace your your worldview there. The ecosystems will be restored. There'll be enough, no more fighting over resources. Is that what happens in the animal kingdom? Remember, humans are gone. Uh, okay. Uh, and then Les Knight takes us on his journey. What a journey it's been. My journey to advocating for voluntary human extinction began at school. He was born in a small town, Oregon, and... Uh, Uh, There were more new students than the elementary school could cope with, so classes overflowed into churches. And high school was the same. So from a very early age, last night figured out, you know, we got to get rid of all these people. Boy, he uh, shares the attitude of uh, every despot in mankind's history. He goes on uh, to, uh, uh, of course, refer to his exposure to Paul Ehrlich's book, Population Bomb, which was published in the late 60s and turned out to be a total dud. More apocalyptic predictions, more end-of-days predictions, more eschatology that completely debunked by reality. Time proves all, and it disproved Paul Ehrlich's contentions. The slogan of that book, Stop at Two, yeah, 
uh, just a decade later, China was doing stop at one and the ravages of China's one child policy. If you think population control at the hands of government is something you want to sign on to watch the documentary One Child Nation about the brutality and inhumanity of China's one child policy. Stop at two, Paul Ehrlich and last night. But it didn't take uh, much math to work out that uh, this would take too long. Always in a hurry, those people that are going to save us from ourselves. Instead of stopping at, stopping at two children, we needed to stop at once. Not one, at once. At 25, I wanted to show I was serious. A medical school gave me a discounted vasectomy in exchange for being a student doctor's first try at the procedure. <laughs> mm, yeah. Uh, he goes on to talk about uh, the Extinction Rebellion, which is a outgrowth of his vehemed voluntary human extinction movement and the climate strike movement. They haven't quite embraced population's contribution to the crisis, he uh, laments. Other high-profile awareness organizations are working hard to be acceptable, so suggest zero or one offspring and uh, still say stop at two. But two is too many says last night. It's true, he concedes, society would be greatly diminished without children, but he'll get over it. But it isn't right to create them just because we like having them around. People worry that we won't have enough workers to support pensioners. What pensioners? But economic systems are artificial and can be adjusted. We don't need to breed more wage slaves to prop up an obsolete system. That's one way for, to achieve pension reform. If we go extinct, concludes Knight, other species will have a chance to recover I'll never see the day when there are no humans on the planet, but I can imagine what a magnificent world it would be, provided we go soon enough. Hey, uh, Les, uh, according to your fellow travelers, now again, they're not going at quite the pace you are, we're well on our way, right? Isn't that the whole point here? Uh, We're at end days. The glaciers are melting at uh, Glacier National Park in Montana, except they're not. Uh, Greta's demanding we divest and stop investing and stop using fossil fuels immediately. AOC wants to, I don't know, eliminate uh, garbage disposals and, and colonial cauliflower and such. So why, why even argue? Why even have these discussions anymore? If you're right, then can we move on to another topic? You know, can't everybody just take the posture of uh, slim pickings as captain king kong and dr strangelove and just ride this thing down to the ground what about major kong good times right last night again if we go extinct other species will have a chance to recover i'll never see the day when there are no humans on the planet, but I can imagine what a magnificent world it would be provided we go soon enough. And uh, that, plus the uh, Greta Thunberg prayer candles available on Amazon Prime, and so many other pronouncements from so many other cranks, discarding so much science. And we're to understand that this is uh, not a cult. This is not a religion. This whole movement is not faith-based. These are not empty vessels looking for meaning in their life. 
and we shouldn't be concerned about uh, these individuals being false prophets looking for political power in many cases, looking for celebrity status in other cases, any more than any cult leader we would otherwise dismiss out of hand. It's remarkable, remarkable the things this movement gets away with saying and gets away with falsely predicting. This is the Dan Prof Show. I wish I was special But I'm a creep The more you listen, the more you'll know This is the Dan Prof Show Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and down goes another gun banner. Cory Booker, senator from New Jersey, suspending his campaign today with the signature treacly message. Today I'm suspending my campaign for president with the same spirit with which it began. It is my faith in us, faith in us together as a nation, that we share common pain and common problems that can only be solved with a common purpose and a sense of common cause. So now I recommit myself to the work. I can't wait to get back on the campaign trail and campaign as hard as I can for whoever is the eventual nominee and for candidates up and down the ballot. But for now, I want to say thank you. Campaigning over this last year has been one of the most meaningful experiences of my life, meeting you, meeting people across this country who believe, who know that we may have challenges right now in our nation, but together we will rise. Phony is a $3 bill. That's why Cory Booker never got off the ground. In addition to uh, his furtive, uh, fertile imagination, I should say, uh, which is doesn't distinguish him from the field. So now he'll have more time to spend with his fictional gangbanger friend T-Bone and his fictional girlfriend Rosario Dawson. So that's the good news for Cory Booker. He, he's really a bit of a cautionary tale as well, really a cautionary tale, you know, because he, he came to be mayor of Newark uh, some two decades ago on a lot of promise. You know, this is a accomplished guy, you know, Stanford football player. Uh, and he could have been somebody that charted a different course for urban centers that have been devastated by crime and other pathologies. And so you thought, well, maybe this is somebody who will take up the school choice movement. Uh, and there seemed to be some early indication he would. But then the allure of the swamp and the allure of political power and uh, shape-shifting himself into wherever the zeitgeist was and thinking that, uh, you know, his sort of phony baloney uh, optimistic veneer could uh, make up for the fact that he's just pantomiming the moves of a comrade Bernie or a chief Warren, who's also chief Warren pantomiming the moves a little bit, but nothing like Cory Booker really sort of a shameless, obviously patronizing campaign. Because he's a shameless, patronizing politician. I mean, remember this moment during the Kavanaugh hearings, don't you? I appreciate the comments of my colleagues. This is about the closest I'll probably...
probably ever have in my life to an I am Spartacus moment. Yeah, it wasn't very close. And so now you're relegated to the ash heap of Democratic uh, presidential history with uh, your fellow gun banner, Bobby O'Rourke, who thought if I go hard enough and far enough left on a incendiary issue like guns and in Bobby O'Rourke's case of faith, religious liberty, then maybe I can carve out uh, the plurality of the electorate in my primary that I need. Didn't happen for Bobby. Didn't happen for Corey. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And uh, end of last week, Christopher Ray, FBI director, unveiled more than 40 corrective actions that he has ordered, including 12 specifically related to the surveillance application process to reform the FBI's conduct as it pertains to FISA courts in the wake of the catastrophe that was the FBI's performance during the Comey era and obtaining FISA applications to uh, surveil those individuals that were related to the Trump campaign, however, tangentially, uh, for example, perhaps most prominently, Carter Page. Uh, in the uh, filing, Ray said the FBI has the utmost respect for this court, deeply regrets the errors and omissions identified by the Office of the Inspector General. Of course, referring to the Horowitz report. Uh, he uh, said the uh, FBI's conduct in relation to the Carter Page surveillance was, quote, unacceptable and unrepresentative of the FBI as an institution. Mistakes were made, which is not dissimilar to what Jim Comey said uh, after that Horowitz report was released. And per the testimony of Michael Horowitz on the Hill, which was none too complimentary of the FBI, particularly in this area. So is this enough? Is this enough to reestablish confidence in the FBI uh, generally and particularly as it relates to uh, surveillance powers specifically? Uh, for more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Julie Kelly, senior contributor for American Greatness, amgreatness.com, who has written on the topic. Julie, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan, thanks for having me. Congrats on your new show. Well-deserved. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, and so, uh, is Chris Ray the right man for the job? Are you encouraged by the uh, corrective actions that he has proposed? Um, I'm not at all. And I had an article up on amgreatness.com that details just a few of the reasons why Christopher Ray is not the right man to overhaul this agency that has completely decimated its reputation in the last few years, thanks to people like James Comey and Andrew McCabe and Peter Strzok, et cetera. So his corrective actions in his uh, filing to the FISA court that was released over the weekend does nothing to reassure Americans that they're serious about, you know, what they did and correcting what they did. You can't correct people who are corrupt. You can't correct people who are immoral. You can't correct people who have abused their power to take down a sitting president of the United States. 
And, you know, these are the same people now who have written books and are on their Twitter feed continuing to talk about how much they hate Donald Trump. You can't change those people. And the fact that Christopher Ray offered an apology to the FISA court and not to Carter Page and not to Donald Trump and not to the people of the United States of America who have had their trust in this agency completely torched uh, says a lot about the fact that Ray is not the right man to lead the FBI. Uh, what about uh, over there? The uh, You had another piece about the intelligence community's inspector general. We've given... Um, a lot of credence to uh, what Michael Horowitz has to, had to say, the Department of Justice Inspector General, his criticisms of the FBI uh, in a couple of reports he's done now, which, and, you know, his integrity has really largely gone on challenge, and perhaps that's appropriate. Uh, he is an Obama-era appointee criticizing a lot of other Obama-era appointees. But you also write about the inspector, uh, the intelligence community's Inspector General, Michael Atkinson, and the timing is is interesting because President Trump brought him up uh, recently in an interview with Laura Ingram that actually Atkinson is one of the people, if we're going to have witnesses at a Senate impeachment trial, that he would like to see testify to because he's got questions for him about why he essentially gave his stamp of approval on the so-called whistleblowers complaint. And you make a connection between Atkinson and FISA gate and impeachment. What is that? Right. So it's very important to find out what Michael Atkinson did, who is the inspector general for the intelligence community. It's very important to see what he did in terms of his handling of the whistleblower complaint, but even more compelling and I think more necessary for the American public to know is Atkinson's ties to FISA gate to the uh, corrupt uh, collusion probe into the Donald Trump campaign because he was the senior counsel for the person who was in charge of both of those, a woman named Mary McCord. Mary McCord headed the agency, uh, the National Security Division, out of the Department of Justice that is in charge of the FISA process. She also oversaw the collusion probe. So her ties to this whole scandal are very deep. And he was her chief counsel the entire time that she was at Department of Justice. So that is the tie between, so now he he has his connections to the original probe, the original attempt to take out Donald Trump, and now you draw a straight line to his role as inspector general and the handling of this whistleblower complaint and his communications with Schiff, with Schiff's committee, and the fact that Adam Schiff, this is the only testimony, the only transcript that Adam Schiff will not release, and that is Michael Atkinson's. Now, why? Uh, because I think that people are starting to put uh, all these connections together. Um, and so I think that it's very important that if, when this gets to the Senate, their very first witness should be Michael Atkinson. Well, okay, and so let's draw one more line. Your friend and mine, Molly Hemingway, over at The Federalist, writes about a guy named David Chris, who's mm-hmm. been appointed by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court's presiding judge, James Bosberg to review Christopher Ray's proposed changes to its surveillance application process, even though Chris has spent the last few years running interference for the FBI and, uh, and, and being part of the walls are closing in chorus during the Mueller impeachment investigation, Mueller collusion investigation, which was an impeachment investigation. He, he criticized the Nunez memo, which turned out to be substantially true, according to DOJ Inspector General Michael Horowitz. He said of it, David Chris, the, the Nunez memo was dishonest. If it's allowed to stand, we raise we risk significant collateral damage to essential elements of our democracy. Uh, and and now he's reviewing Christopher Ray's proposed changes to the F- 
FISA application process as it pertains to the FBI. So, I mean, this is all so much sort of self-dealing from the usual suspects, it seems. That's absolutely right. I mean, for the fact that the now presiding judge of the FISA court appointed David Chris, it's such a slap in the face of anybody who's really anxious to see reform, not just of the FISA process, but the entire law enforcement uh, apparatus in Washington, D.C., to pick someone like David Chris, who is a tr- he's also a Trump hater. I, I posted my piece, a tweet that he just had in March that said it, he was very disappointed with the results of the Mueller report, that they found no collusion. But he said, well, don't worry, Southern District of New York is going to get Trump for his campaign uh, finance violation. So basically, we'll get him out that way. How can you pick someone so partisan who's been so openly partisan to review you know, what Christopher Ray claims he's going to do to reform FISA court and have this guy in charge of it? It's just it's as if they're mocking not just the president and Republicans, but they're mocking the American public. And that is why we need to clean house. It's very disappointing to see Republicans and Donald Trump not do more to get these people out of power. Well, right. I mean, it's it's one thing to, oh, you know, just because you are affiliated with the Democrat Party doesn't mean you're not competent and you won't be even handed. Well, um, so there's the partisan piece of David Chris, and then there's the uh, competence question about David Chris. He's just wrong. Uh, he claimed... He claimed, for example, that the FISA applications, quote, substantially undermined the president's narrative and that of his proxies. And if there were more investigation or transparency, it would get worse, not better for him with respect to specifically the uh, surveillance of Carter Page, which the director of the FBI just apologized for. Right. Well, and again, who did who did they apologize to? They apologized to the FISA court. They never apologized to Carter Page. Carter Page is still trying to get his reputation back and all the people that they targeted. Um, And so, you know, remember, this is the same agency, too, that went after Mike Flynn, that went after George Papadopoulos. I mean, Carter Page is the biggest victim, but he certainly is not the only one. They don't care. I mean, all you have to do is look at Peter Strzok and Lisa Page's texts, right? They hate half of this country. They hate anyone associated with the Republican Party. They certainly hate anybody who supported Donald Trump. They have nothing but contempt for average Americans. And these are people entrusted to uphold the law. Now, you have somebody who's going to be in charge of overseeing reform at a secret court that approves 99 percent of the applications that the FBI puts before it in terms of government surveillance. This is a huge scandal, a huge corruption, a huge violation of the trust that we have in the legal process. And you pick somebody like that. Um, And furthermore, Dan, let's get back a little bit too to Michael Atkinson. This is why Senate uh, Republicans really, aside from judges, are pretty much useless. Michael Atkinson should never have been approved by the Senate Intelligence Committee or by uh, the Senate Republicans as a whole. They control the Senate. They put this man in charge as watchdog of the intelligence community. They knew his ties to the Obama uh, Justice Department, and yet they put him in a position of power, and he's still there. Yeah, per- um, and, and, and so and pers- that's disappointing. And personnel is policy. She is Julie right. Kelly, senior contributor for American Greatness, amgreatness.com. You want to check out her pieces there on Christopher Ray, as well as Michael Atkinson, the ICIG. Julie, thanks for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, interesting uh, news out over the weekend about how things transpired after the U.S. strike that killed Iranian General Soleimani. Just because it goes to undermine the perception promulgated by the Beltway Big Government Press Corps that this is a reckless, thoughtless, incoherent administration, particularly when it comes to national security and the continued prosecution of the case that this was a reckless act by the president to order the strike. Wall Street Journal reporting hours after a U.S. strike killed Major General Qasem Soleimani, the Trump administration sent an urgent back-channel message to Tehran, don't escalate. The encrypted fax was sent via the Swiss embassy in Iran, one of the few means of direct confidential communication between the two sides, according to U.S. officials. In the days that followed, the White House and Iranian leaders exchanged further messages, which officials in both countries described as far more measured than the fiery rhetoric traded publicly by politicians. This isn't just one guy, you know, finger on the proverbial button. There's texture to these operations. And I'm sorry it couldn't include Nancy Pelosi and others who call Trump a traitor to his country on a daily basis, but it did include actual foreign service professionals and intelligence community operatives in addition to his key cabinet secretaries. Speaking of intelligence, too, we also find out according to unnamed officials, that U.S. troops at the al-Assad air base in Iraq that was struck in, you know, the sort of the face-saving retaliatory strike by Iran were aware that an Iranian attack was imminent. Also, most troops were either flown out of the base or sheltering in bunkers by 11 p.m. on that Tuesday night shortly before the uh, missiles struck. Just interesting, just want provide a little bit more color to all these goings on than you're going to get if you watch the Sunday talkies and listen to that yapping terror Chuck Todd or some of the others as well. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, good to be with you. And it continues through yesterday with uh, Chuck Todd talking to NSA, Robert O'Brien, and, you know, getting to, well, wait, hey, hey, Bob, if we're going to call Soleimani a terrorist, then don't we have to call everyone in the regime a terrorist? And then Robert O'Brien had to explain to Chuck Todd, you know, the distinction Soleimani earned through his terrorist activities to have a travel ban imposed by the U.N. outside of Iran and the designation he has via our State Department that's separate and distinct from other Iranian military or senior government officials and so on and so forth. So, uh, again, prosecuting the case, it seems, for Soleimani on Meet the Press. Well, you know, so as I said, you know, you continue to see headlines about we were at the brink of crisis, the brink of war. Yeah. And, and clearly, increasingly, the evidence suggests, no, we weren't. We were not in the middle of an escalating crisis. U.S. response is actually quite effective. And yet you continue to see headlines come out essentially saying that, we, you know, we were all about to die in World War III. Equally kind of disturbing is the media response to the protests in Iran uh, and Iraq, for that matter, which are principally aimed against the regime and are celebrating the death of Soleimani. But yet you look at what the mainstream media are saying is they're very much lowballing that, not giving it near the attention and coverage that they gave when they could argue it was all Trump's fault. And when you look at, you know, the politicians have been critical of the president, they were so quick to blame the president, make excuses for, for Soleimani. Now you see the, the Iranian people essentially going to the streets, putting their lives at risk, saying, no, no, you're wrong. The bad guys here are in Tehran. And when you look at the level of 
statements, tweeting, et cetera, from President Chris almost nil. How, how fragile is the Iranian regime right now? I mean, I, I, I don't want to get out of our skis, too, the student protests notwithstanding, in terms of the prospect well, of an, anything significant happening in that country, except perhaps the repression of those protesters. You know, there's a terrific book by Natan Sharansky that talks about the difference between authoritarian regimes and democracies. And one of his really brilliant insights is the problem with analyzing the authoritarian regime and saying, what are they going to fall is they're predicated on not allowing people to have full information and transparency. And this is why we're always surprised when these, these things kind of collapse. You know, I got to say that this regime has been around since 1979. They have incredibly strong controls over every element of the society. I doubt that a bunch of protests are going to bring the regime down. But having, having said that, you never know about how fragile they really are. The Ayatollah is you know, literally on his, on his deathbed, but everybody expects him to die relatively soon. That's going to be a power struggle in the country. The economy is in terrible straits. They're completely politically isolated. The demonstrations are capable of hitting a tipping point or not. I don't think we know. I don't think we can plan on that. I don't think we can count on that. How fragile is the situation in Iraq? Trump administration warning the Iraqis they risk losing access to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York's accounts if they force America to withdraw from from Baghdad, you know, just in terms of you can do your little show resolution to serve your Iranian masters, but, you know, don't make it more than that. I mean, I think there, again, I'm a little more sanguine. It is an eye-binding resolution. It is a caretaker government. They don't really have the authority to make those kinds of decisions. If you look at the Iraqi people, you you have Kurds, Sunni, and and, uh, Shia. The Kurds want us to stay. They very much value their autonomous status, and they know that that having the Americans there is key to preserving that. The Sunni want us to stay. They're in the minority. If you remember Saddam Hussein was a Sunni, um, they ran a very oppressive government for a long time, but now they're in the minority, and they know the Americans leaving is almost a death sentence for them. And the Shia are really split. I mean, there are Shia that are incredibly pro-Iranian, but there are many Shia who are very nationalistic and want to preserve their own country. So I I don't think we're anything close. And even the vote in Parliament was extremely close. I don't think we're anything close to the Iraqi people actually wanting the United States to leave. Back at home uh, and thinking about that uh, Pensacola shooting uh, at the Naval Air Station in Pensacola, uh, it was announced that more than a dozen Saudi servicemen training at U.S. military installations throughout the country are going to be expelled from the United States after a review that was done by uh, a DOJ. Uh, Saudis are not accused, the Saudis being expelled, not accused of aiding the shooter, but uh, some are said to have connections to extremist movements. Also, uh, a number are accused of possessing child pornography. Uh, so uh, but, but the question is, uh, the Department of Defense and uh, Justice that that looked into this now, you're expelling a dozen. Is this uh, is this going to be a one off or is this emblematic of a new protocol to do better vetting of the foreign servicemen that are training in the United States? Yeah, I, I imagine this is a, a prelude to stronger vetting. I, I think it's shocking and stunning that the Saudis would, would let that number of people slip through. I mean, normally they're they're very serious about this, and they know the importance of it. So, you know, something isn't isn't right here. And and obviously, um, the the vetting process between the Saudis and the Americans is is going to have to kind of reach a new level. This is it's really stunning that what they found. He is Jim Carafano, VP of the Catherine and Shelby Cullen Davis Institute of International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Take care.
This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And uh, over the weekend, ICE, that would be the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, called out a particular county in a particular state for releasing illegal immigrants who have been accused of crimes. Um, of course, uh, the county that they felt compelled to call out and located in the state they compelled, felt compelled to call out was uh, my home county and my home state. I'm sorry to report, but I'm not surprised to report. Cook County, Illinois. Uh, Cook County, Illinois. Uh, Cook County is a sanctuary county. Chicago and Cook County is a sanctuary city. And uh, both of those jurisdictions are located in the sanctuary state of Illinois. And here's what I said about Cook County. More than 1,000 detainer requests were denied by local law enforcement in fiscal year 2019 alone. Those denials translated into more than 1,000, 1,070 to be precise, criminal aliens and immigration violators getting released, according to the agency. Uh, ICE pointed to the releases of a South African national who was accused of indecent exposure, a Nicaraguan national who was arrested for domestic violence. Domestic violence, that's an important uh, crime, I would think. Uh, something that you want to uh, mete out justice in response to, but apparently not if you're here illegally. Henry Lucero, an ICE official, saying in the release on the topic, because ICE does not have access to standard Illinois law enforcement databases, it's difficult to accurately account for all the aliens who have been arrested, released, and committed additional crimes. However, with the limited information ICE can uh, with the limited with the limited information I can verify, we know that police resources are being wasted. More people are being victimized, and it's a matter of time until something more significant happens. Uh, yeah, well, uh, look, Illinois, not unlike other states, has had their share of Kate Steinle tragedies. Uh, friends of mine, uh, families who've become friends of mine, Brian McCann in Chicago, whose brother Denny was killed in a hit and run accident. And the individual, because of the lax law enforcement in the sanctuary county of Cook, was able to flee to Mexico, never to be heard from again, or at least not to date. That's uh, almost a decade ago now. Another friend, Eric Brady from Muhammad, which is in central Illinois. His wife, Jeannie, on a New Year's Eve a couple of years back, coming home from bartending that night, you know, working a second job to make a little bit of money. Made a little bit extra money for the household. She's killed in a, a hit and run accident with a driver, ostensibly drunk, going the wrong way on an exit. Kills her. Uh, he is a he was a foreign national of a Central American country. He uh, fled, and uh, again, no justice for the Brady family. As I says. It's a matter of time until something more significant happens. This is going to continue to be an issue in uh, the run-up to the 2020 election. Not just our southern border, but this matter of removing people in this country illegally who've committed serious crimes. We know going back to the Obama administration, Senate testimony between Ted Cruz and Obama's ICE director about the number of individuals accused of, in some cases, convicted of violent crimes who were nonetheless released into 
American society, American communities uh, throughout the country. And yet from the political class, you get, of course, of course, we need to be in the business of removing people in this country illegally who've committed violent crimes. No one expresses opposition to that, even as they say things like we should abolish ICE, we should have open borders, we shouldn't have a wall, obviously. But they all take the posture, of course, expel violent criminals who are in this country illegally. But we don't do it. We don't do it. And I'll tell you what, the ironic thing for uh, those who are so pro-immigration, and I'm a pretty pro-legal immigration guy, very pro, actually. But I will not entertain other immigration reforms until and unless you can do the one thing that you say is a priority. Let's see the federal government prove up their seriousness. And frankly, state and local governments, too, when it comes to working with federal law enforcement, prove to me that you're serious about dealing with violent criminals in this country illegally. And then we can have a conversation about other topics under the heading immigration reform. But until then, we can't. Until then, we can't. And by the way, when we come back, this is not the only disturbing trend in law enforcement when it comes to urban centers. New York, Philadelphia, they're uh, pursuing uh, similar uh, reforms, they call them, that ostensibly are in opposition to mass incarceration. What they're really in opposition to is public safety. We'll have that when we come back on the damn property. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We're talking about the trends in law enforcement or the lack thereof in big cities. Uh, talking about Chicago, my hometown specifically, because of ICE calling out Cook County for being apparently one of, if not the worst offender in the country in 2019 for not honoring detainer requests of federal law enforcement of ICE. But uh, there are other things happening, too. We mentioned last week uh, talking about... Uh, the attacks on Jews in New York uh, that happened over the holidays, uh, talking about um, the bail reform. If you're technically not accused of what uh, prosecutor's office defines as a violent crime, then under this new bail reform, reform, quote unquote, advanced by uh, Fredo's brother there, the governor and his fellow Democrats, including the Sandinista mayor of New York City, de Blasio, who, uh, you know, another short-lived presidential campaign, but he does still hold the uh, honor of the definitive statement of the Democrat Socialist Party when it comes to economic policy, something you should squirrel away in your mind as you watch 2020 unfold, which is de Blasio saying there's plenty of money in this country. It's just in the wrong hands. And uh, he and his friends know just how to redistribute your money appropriately. But uh, I go I digress. I go back to this bail reform measure. Here's how it's playing out in practice. New York Post uh, reporting that uh, a man who was arrested in connection with four Manhattan bank robberies. Was released. And then promptly 
robbed a fifth bank in Brooklyn on Friday. He had he had robbed four banks in about 10 days between December 30th and January 8th, released, then he robs a fifth bank. Why was he released? How could he rob a bank and be released? Because he used a note rather than a gun. So no New York jail can currently hold him, no matter how many times he strikes under their quote-unquote bail reform measure. They're nonviolent felonies. Under that reform that took effect January 1 in New York State, most nonviolent felonies, including bank robberies carried out without a weapon, are no longer bail eligible, meaning no judge can order him, order him held pending trial. And so instead, the judge, after he was arrested the day after he was released, after the fourth bank he robbed, sort of did an end run around the bail reform by holding him over for a psychiatric tests since he can't hold him over formally because... No, he's a, I repeat, I think is generous, repeat offender with respect to robbing banks. Uh, here's something else, too, going on in New York, and this sort of dovetails with the sanctuary city status of so many big blue cities and big blue states. And that's uh, New York State looking at allowing undocumented immigrants to register to vote when they obtain their driver's licenses. That's uh, partially the case in Illinois, meaning Illinois has... A provision where people here illegally can get a temporary visitor's driver's license. And what uh, New York State is doing and what Illinois could do, both with majorities of Democrats and Democrat governor, both big blue states, both state hemorrhaging populations. Yeah, I wonder why. Illinois could just amend its law to take out the temporary visitor's driver's license as an exception. And uh, New York is looking to move legislation straight away that would allow people here illegally to automatically register to vote when they obtain a driver's license that they would legally be able to obtain. They can in Illinois, temporary driver's license. They may be able to in New York. Now you have this whole matter of, sure, we're hemorrhaging population, but we'll make ourselves safe havens, sanctuaries, if you will, for people coming into this country illegally. And uh, with the benefits that we're conferring, from the population that's staying will have a built in supermajority of Democrats to keep us in power, no matter how bad it gets economically in the state of Illinois or the state of New York. Mm. Uh, one other case study here, too, because, you know, these local issues matter. And uh, in part, they can bubble up to be federal issues, particularly when they're is a national play afoot. And that national play, funded by George Soros and others, is to get individuals like Kim Fox in Cook County and uh, Vance in New York City and Larry Krasner in Philadelphia installed as the district or county state's attorneys. Larry Krasner, Philadelphia, is notorious for filing 75 lawsuits against Philadelphia police in his career as a criminal defense attorney in Philly. In a 2017 campaign video, he said, quote, policing and prosecution are both systematically racist. Now, he's not not he's not a district attorney in Philadelphia. Policing and prosecution are both systematically racist. He said poverty and crime are consequences of mass incarceration. So they shouldn't be punished. Poverty and crime consequences of mass incarceration. So what do you do? You know, you open up the the jail cells. Uh, there's a case that's profiled in the Wall Street Journal to give you a sense of how this plays out in practice. 
when it comes to equal justice under the law. Uh, there's a, a man named Michael White who killed a man named Sean Schellinger in Philadelphia. Didn't deny it. He admitted to police at his trial, that he admitted to police and at his trial, both, that he plunged a knife several times into Schellenberger's back during a July 2018 scuffle in Philly. Witnesses in a cell phone video can confirm what happened. Yet a jury in October of last year acquitted White of voluntary manslaughter. He's a college student. Many, including Schellenberger's family, blame Larry Krasner, who initially charged White with first-degree murder and denied requests for bail, but under pressure from leaders in Philadelphia's African-American community, the state's attorney, Krasner, downgraded the charge to third-degree murder. Then days before the trial, Krasner dropped the murder charge entirely and went with voluntary manslaughter and weapons possession. Uh, Schellen, uh, Schellinger's mom said this of Krasner. The prosecutor really utilized the legal system to make sure White, the assailant, didn't get the punishment that was intended. Uh, she said uh, that her son's killer was going to be convicted of third-degree murder, and Krasner knew that. That's why he dropped the charge. I mean, this is no different than uh, you know, violent criminals on the streets who are here legally, violent criminals on the streets who are here illegally. We've got a uh, law enforcement problem with ideologues in positions of authority, both in mayor's offices and in the less uh, public the less scrutinized district attorney's offices that need more scrutiny. This is the Dan Prop Show. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, oh, brother, men getting in touch with their feelings. In a chalet in the Massachusetts countryside, tears run down Lucas Crump's cheeks as he pours his heart out at one of the new kind of support groups growing in popularity among American men. There were moments this year when I wanted to give up, said the 40-year-old in the trust circle. All are tired so Yahoo News reports, of trying to live up to traditional male stereotypes. The uh, dozen or so men, ranging in their age, ages from uh, 20s, in their 20s to their 60s, leading a retreat run by every man, a group that helps men shrug off the armor of masculinity to get in touch with their true feelings, like a sort of anti-fight club. It's not your fault. Don't, f- don't, you, don't you do it. Don't you, don't you do it. It's not your fault. Don't f*** with me, all right? Don't f*** with me, Sean. Not you. It's not your fault. I couldn't tolerate it uh, in Goodwill Hunting, much less in reality, sitting around with a dozen other guys having huggable moments. The groups are seeing a surge in attendance, though, the report is, uh, because uh, particularly uh, down the age demographic, because uh, uh, among U.S. millennials, the uh, the debate rages about so-called toxic masculinity Fueled by the Me Too movement. Uh huh. So the um, the man hating left is uh, making some progress too, and having men questioned being men. 
Uh, And it's not to say, you know, therapy problems, people, especially anything that borders on the the uh, edge of self-harm. I don't know if a group setting is the best way, but I'm not necessarily opposed to it. However, a lot of this sort of male stereotypes, anti-fight club stuff. Oh, my goodness. Other support groups providing men's workshops and regular retreats include Junto and the Mankind Project. The idea behind them is not new. Robert Bly pioneering self-help books and therapy sessions for men in the 1990s. But um, the uh, gentlemen who structured these everyman programs say the sessions are much more popular than they were 20 years ago. Younger men more open to this, more willing to take the initial risk. Uh, And uh, we, uh, he says, uh, we meet men where they are and not come in and say, hey, what you're doing is terrible. Yeah. The purpose is not to deal directly with toxic masculinity, but the issue is never too far away. Men having the ability to go deep into that hurt and to feel it and to process in a more healthy way than they're not hurting other people. That's the skill that's being taught at retreats and week-long expeditions. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, well, I'll tell you what. Uh, I, you know, I'm open-minded to whatever works for anybody, but this idea as predicated on toxic masculinity, well, we have a name for people who buy into the theory of toxic masculinity. They're called feminists. Don't become one. This is the Dan Prof Show. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.